Well, hi everyone. This is Deb. And this is Beth. And we wanted to take a moment to tell you about our brand new podcast called Dying to be Found. Beth. Yeah? If you were to describe our true crime podcast to people, what would you say? Well, I tell people that we are two sisters who are intrigued by crime. We also try to delve into stories that we think our listeners can relate to. Deb, how would you describe Dying to be Found? I'd like to tell people that our podcast is open to the interpretation of our listeners. We don't always discuss big names in crime. We also talk about missing persons who are just dying to be found. But then again, there are definitely criminals that are dying to be found by the police. We're always open to whatever stories we report and really want our listeners to take an active role in why we do this. Beth, do you have anything else to add? No, I think we covered it really well. You can listen to brand new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. And please visit us at our website at dying to be found and on social media at Dying to be Found. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And we're True Crime B&B. And we are very happy that you're here. Yes, welcome back for week 17. Then week 18 we're recording in two days, so wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so if anything big happens in the news that we don't talk about, that's because I'm going to be out of town for the next week. We never talk about anything. I know, but I'm just saying, don't. If something big (laughs) happens and we're ignoring it, it seems it's because it hasn't happened to us yet. So, (laughs) okay. Anyway, we are talking to you from the future. Today, we started off our episode with a trailer for Dying to be Found. They are very similar to us. Yeah, they're a a family as well. Yeah, it's two sisters, Deb and Beth. Yep. And they're a whole country apart, too. That's right. Yeah. Beth records from Canada, and Deb records from Georgia. And (laughs) we just find their interaction to be very much like ours, and we like them a lot. And Mm -hmm. so we hope that you will give them a try if you have never heard of them before. Yeah, and I've been listening to them since before we even really started the podcast, so I definitely recommend giving them a little listen. Today, what are you doing for us? So I'm not even going to ask you if you know this story, because I know that you do, but I think some of our listeners may not. All right. This was a request from my father, Craig. Hey, Dad. (laughs) I am doing today the Hawking Torso Murders. Oh, God. Yes. And unfortunately, this is one of those cases where when it happened, more attention was paid to the people that did this crime versus the actual victims. So it's really hard to find information about them. Yeah. But I will tell you what I did find. We're going to start out with Annette Cooper Johnston, who in the obituary I found for her, her name was Margaret Annette Cooper Johnston. So I think... She just goes by her middle name, Annette, so okay. that's what I'll call her. All right. She was born on June 11th, 1964 in Xenia, Ohio. Yep. She had a fiancé named Todd Leroy Schultz, who was born June 26, 1963 in yeah. Nelsonville, Ohio. Yeah. So Annette Cooper Johnston, who at the time was a college student at Hawking College, she was 18 years old, and her fiancé Todd Leroy Schultz was a volunteer firefighter. He was 19 at the time. They had been high school sweethearts and recently had become engaged. However, they weren't living together yet. They both lived with their families nearby. Well, this was what, 1982? I was going to say, because it wasn't that common back then for people to live together. There were people who did, but it wasn't common. They were very innocent teens. You know, there's some teens that go out and party and stuff like that at 18, 19, but they weren't like that. They wanted to do it the old-fashioned way. When they went out one night, and then I believe it was October 3rd, and then October 4th, Todd's family noticed he never came home. His bed was still made from the day before. So they reported them missing October 4th, 1982. And that was in West Logan, Ohio. 
a big search started for the couple. They just kind of figured maybe they ran away because they were both missing. But on October 14th, the bodies, and by bodies I mean just the torsos of the couple, were found in the Hawking River nearby. Wow. The search continued into October 16th where they found a shallow grave in a cornfield right next to the river. And their remaining body parts, including their limbs and heads, were found in that grave. I can kind of remember this from when I was in high school, mm-hmm. but I wasn't real news-oriented in high school, so I didn't and really... And this wasn't really covered unless you lived in this exact area. Yeah, like it... I was up in the Cleveland area back then. Yeah, and so when this was going on, my dad was, well, a little bit after. He ended up going to college in Hawking, no, he, like near the Hawking Hills. He was in, I think What's he graduated he in 82, didn't he? Yes, you're right. When this happened, he was still living. Because I remember campus. when your dad and I were dating, and he talked about that. Mm-hmm. He was talking about how they used to run Stroud's Run or something, and they would sing <laughs> the Logan motion instead of the locomotion. Yep. And it was about the you know. He said he was t- telling me about this on the phone when I called him a couple days ago, and he said he would do the Logan motion and saw off their arms as a dance move and the bars and stuff. Yeah. And I was, and- I understand. It was the time to be drunk college kids. Yeah. (laughs) Cringy in college. Yeah. Yeah. So it was in the town where my dad was living at the time. Very close. Yeah. Anyway, after they found the bodies, obviously this was a homicide investigation. People close to the family, including friends of the couple, began pointing fingers to Annette's stepfather, Dale Johnston. His relationship with Annette recently had been really strained because he didn't approve of her relationship with Todd. So once they announced they were getting married, he said, I'm putting my foot down. I don't like this. I don't like him for you. And I looked up his interviews and stuff. He never really explained why he didn't like him. He just got a bad feeling. So he didn't like him. They ignored that and continued their engagement. They also had a witness come forward. It was an anonymous witness, so they never mentioned him in any of the trial records. But he did a hypnosis session, and he claimed that he suddenly remembered during this session that he had seen Dale, the stepfather, forcing Annette into his car and then threatening to punch Todd. Wow. And so he was had some violence shown towards Todd. And they later claimed he had a sexual motivation, like he had feelings for his stepdaughter and then killed them out of jealousy once they got engaged. Yeah. So was his supposedly recovered memory supposed to be from when they disappeared or was this a previous event? This was before they disappeared, like a couple months. It was just somebody coming forward to say that that he did have hostile feelings towards the couple at this time. So, But again, he was under hypnosis while this confession was being recorded or whatever. Was there a word from the mother what she thought about the stepfather's possible involvement at the time? I didn't see anything where she actually spoke to anybody because, of course, her whole world just got wrecked, you know? Yes. So I can understand where you're like, I think he's innocent, but let the courts do it, maybe. So I think she just kind of put it into the law's hand and stepped back and whatever happens, happens. Yeah, she probably couldn't even see straight. For sure. And of course you'd be questioning everything at that point, because who did it if he didn't, you know? After all this, Dale Johnston was arrested on September 29th, 1983 of the murders. And he actually decided against a jury trial, so he instead went for a panel of three judges to see his case. The only evidence against him presented was the witness testimony from the session under hypnosis. And also... dodgy. I know. And they also had... There's only two things. That and then they had an anthropologist who specialized in matching footprints with shoes. And they had found a footprint 
of a pair of cowboy boots near the body that matched a pair that Dale owned. Okay. Which is rural Ohio in the cornfields. Of course, everybody there has freaking cowboy boots. That's yeah, not but really they aren't solid all going to have matching prints. But it's 1982. How many brands of cowboy boots are at the local rural store? I don't know. People are pretty big on their cowboy <laughs> know. boots. But I'm just saying, it's not like, it is good evidence. I'm not saying you shouldn't look into it further. I'm just saying that's not really enough to convict somebody so in my they book. couldn't come up with any other physical that's all evidence they to tie him to it? Yeah, that's it. Okay. That's all that was presented. And I read like the whole case study and everything. So after all, Dale was convicted as guilty in the double homicide <laughs> on... January 31st, 1984, and on March 27th, 1984, they came back with his sentencing, the wow. death penalty. That's really, I mean... That's what I'm saying, like, oh, all of this over two tiny pieces of evidence yeah, that I weren't mean, even... I don't think there's anything probably wrong with the evidence, but that's a really hefty sentence for not so, having a lot of evidence. There's a lot of reasonable doubt here. That's all I'm saying for yeah. the death penalty. There wasn't a lot of reasonable doubt, in my opinion. There but... was a lot of reasonable doubt. I mean, sorry, there was a lot of reasonable <laughs> So on August 6, 1986, he'd been in jail for about three years. 1986, the conviction was overturned as the hypnosis witness was deemed not reliable and shouldn't have ever been presented in court. So they decided to retry him and do it over again legally. And as they began to prepare for a new trial, the defense actually discovered that the prosecution had hidden some pretty damning information from the defense in the first trial. Wow, that's good. So what they found out was during the investigation of the second crime scene, so they found the torsos first, and then the second crime scene was in the cornfield in a shallow grave. They found all the limbs and the heads. While they were digging this up, just taking pictures, doing all their due diligence of the actual crime scene, there had been a man that the police found watching the police hiding behind a corn stalk, watching them just dig up the evidence. And they were, of course, alarmed by this. And so they wandered over and they started questioning the stranger, like, who are you? What are you doing here? Do you own this land or something? Like, why are you? And they discovered that he didn't own the land. He just lived about three blocks away, but often fished along the river that was nearby and just happened to see them and was wondering what was going on. So he hid behind some corn stalks to watch them do their investigation. Yeah, I would think that Maybe hiding behind the corn stalks is a good way to bring attention yeah, to maybe yourself. hide behind, walk up from the road behind the caution tape and be like, what's going on here? If you're really curious, not hiding. That's yeah, weird. Yeah, let's, let's not act suspicious at all. Yeah. They also discovered, while talking to this man, that he had recently suffered a deep laceration on his arm, hmm. but told him that he simply got it when his arm had gone through a window. Really? Because that happens all the time. Yeah, if nothing else, it shows that he's... Probably a little bit violent. <laughs> How long after the murders did they find the second location? They disappeared on the 4th. They were found on the 14th. The torsos were found on the 14th. And oh. then on the 16th is when they found the limbs. So it was pretty al- close. almost two weeks. It oh. was, yeah. yeah. So and he still had a bad laceration. Mm-hmm. It was really deep. They had hospital records where he had gone to the hospital to get it sewn up. So And when had he gone to the hospital? It didn't really say, but they did dig it up. And the police completely destroyed that evidence before the trial even started for Dale. Yep. Wow, okay. This is all coming up to light, finally, after the second trial for her stepdad had started. In 1988, after all this came to light, Dale was officially moved off of death row because they were like, holy crap, this seems like we need to look into this. And finally, May 10th, 1990, the charges were dismissed and Dale was released from prison so that they could continue their research. Wow. 
So he wasn't completely absolved of the murder, but he was still like, just stay in town. We'll get back to you on what we find. Right. So actually, the case went completely cold for a really long time after this. Mm Mm-hmm. Until 2007. So in 2007, the wife of a man named Kenny Linscott confessed to her parole officer. She had been in and out of jail for like drug offenses, stuff like that. She confessed to her parole officer that the night of the couple's disappearance, they had been at her home. Holy crap. Her and Kenny Linscott. And that Annette and Todd had left with her husband Kenny in his car and they had another man with them. I guess a friend of Kenny's. And they had just gone off. And then sometime later that evening, Kenny had come home from hunting, covered in blood, and had a giant gash in his arm. That's the guy who was hiding behind the corn mm-hmm. So she took him to the hospital and got Holy him all stitched crap. up. Oh my god. That is a bombshell. Yeah. And she held this in this whole freaking time. I'm sorry. Once It wasn't small news. It happened three blocks from your house. You had to know that probably had something to do with oh it. Oh my god. Police reopened the case, finally, and quickly identified the second man that had been in the car with the couple and Kenny that night as Chester McKnight. Chester, at the time, had already been in prison and had a release date of 2017. What he was in prison for already was abduction, felonious assault, attempted unlawful sexual conduct with a minor, as well as, like, four other charges. He was not a great dude. Oh, my God. So when they interviewed McKnight, he admitted that the couple had come to Kenny Lescott's house the night of October 4th, 1982, simply to buy weed. I also read another article from Todd's older brother, Greg, who claimed, this is complete bullshit, but I'm just trying to tell you what he said in the confession. But Greg claims that Todd was a total square, as he put it, and never would have been there for that because... They had gone to house parties together, and he would get handed a beer, and Todd would take the beer and then slyly go to the kitchen and dump it down the sink and pretend he drank the beer. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. And he was a volunteer firefighter. He couldn't smoke weed. Well, they didn't so, drug test Well, probably then. not, but he was just, that's the kind of person he was. <laughs> it just didn't make any sense that he would go to some random dude's house in the middle of a cornfield and buy weed. Okay, so I'm, now I'm getting confused. Yes. Yeah, so, so were they there or were they not there? They were there. Let me just tell you first what McKnight said, and then I'll tell you the full story of what Greg believed to have happened. Okay. So when interviewed, McKnight admitted that the couple had come to Kenny Linscott's house on October 4th, 1982, simply to buy weed. The men lured the couple into the cornfield to drink beer and party, but once out there, he tried to put a move on Annette, and this is McKnight trying to put a move on Annette. Mm -hmm. When Todd saw this and tried to stop him, he punched him, McKnight had shot him six times out of instinct, And then had to shoot Annette because she had been screaming. Obviously, she's screaming, you know. Yeah. McKnight and Lynn Scott both claimed McKnight had done all of the trigger work. He was the one who killed them both. However, Lynn Scott and McKnight then went back to Lynn Scott's house where the couple had met them, grabbed a machete from the Lynn Scott's garage, and began dismembering the bodies together. (sighs) And what had happened with Lynn Scott's arm when he got that injury, he was the one holding down the limbs. Oh, Jesus While Christ. McKnight sawed, and he had slipped and accidentally sawed through Linscott's arm. Well, you don't saw with a machete. Well, not saw, but hacked, I guess, oh, is the better God. term. Yeah. That's horrifying. Mm-hmm. So McKnight <sighs> pled guilty in December of 2008, and he quoted, You live with something for 26 years. It's like a cancer that grows inside of you. Go out there and do something hideous like I did and go out and live with that for 26 years and see how you feel. I don't give a you shit how he feels. You poor fucking baby. I know. He just such a victim. Two more senseless murders because some guy cannot keep his, his dick off. in his pants. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
cannot find someone appropriate for him that wants to be with him. In has front to go out. of his boyfriend. I mean, in front of her boyfriend. What did you think was going to happen? Yeah, he's not going to stand there and let you do what you want if she's not interested in doing what you want. Christ. That's enraging. So, did your dad know that this had these developments? He knew that somebody had falsely been put in prison for it. But he didn't know that I don't the know new developments his extent, had come around. Because I didn't really want to say it too much in case he wanted to be surprised at the end. You know what I mean? Wow. For this, McKnight pled guilty, like I said, in 2008, and he received two life sentences in addition to his other charges that he was already serving jail for. So he will never get out. <laughs> well, I hope not. Yeah. I mean, he already got 26 free years. Yeah. Well, kind of, because he was in jail on and off the entire time, too, well, for other was things. Not for this. Yeah. But oh he also admitted that Lynn Scott did not assist in the murders, only with what happened afterwards. So the murder charges against Kenny Lynn Scott were dropped, as far as murder were concerned, and he instead pled guilty of abuse of a corpse, which is a misdemeanor. Are you kidding me? In two thousand and nine, apart with a machete is a misdemeanor. And hiding the body and holding quiet about it for twenty six years is That's a misdemeanor. Disgusting. That's why was he not an accessory? At the very least, he was there. He watched him do this. Oh my god! He could have run away. His house was right nearby. Unbelievable. But, so in 2009, he was guilty of a misdemeanor of abuse of a corpse. And he was subsequently released from prison because he only got six months for that, which he had already served in the time of the trial. Isn't that such bullshit? That makes me want to smack someone's face off. Mm Mm-hmm. I will give you a little bit of, again, we don't wish bad upon people. However, he was released in 2009, but he died in 2013 at the age of 52 of natural causes. He didn't really get much freedom after that anyway. So both of these guys were in their 20s when they did this thing. Yeah. McKnight and what's his face? Kenny Lynn Scott was 21 and McKnight was 24. Yeah, so they're both in their 50s by the time they get caught. So ever since his release, Dale Johnson has been fighting for his legal innocence because, like I said, they didn't exonerate him. They just... Yeah. Officially, at least. They just said, okay, well, we don't have enough to charge you anymore, so until we get proof. Right. And so he's tried to appeal this many times and get his certificate of innocence because it's still on his record, and he can't sue them until he gets a seal of approval from the court that he is officially innocent for the jail time he served. Yeah. They actually, and after these two got caught and put in jail, they went back and saw that in Ohio in 2003, there was a law that had passed that until this point in 2003, you had to prove your innocence after you were convicted to be Even announced Even if someone else has confessed to the crime and been com- convicted. Mm-hmm. They, this law was passed in 2003 that you no longer had to prove your innocence, especially if somebody else was put in jail for it because they confessed. Obviously, you're innocent, so you automatically get the innocence. Yeah, seal of approval. should hope so. However, th- when they went back to argue this in court after these two were arrested and put in jail, they said, oh, yeah, that law was passed in 2003, but it's not retroactive. It's not retroactive. It doesn't go back what to 1982. What kind of crap is that? Yeah, so he was, once I mean, again... he may not be a great guy. I don't know whether he's a good guy no or a bad guy, but he didn't do was. this. Yeah, he, it just blows my mind. So <sighs> he's been fighting this this entire time. In October of 2015, this is still going on, in October of 2015, the Ohio Supreme Court granted Dale the Declaration of Innocence. Unfortunately, they continued to appeal this, battling back and forth. Why do they care? 
because it, once he gets his declaration of innocence, he is now allowed to sue the state of Ohio for his incarceration period. All right, so you know those things where we talked about the cop who made the fake tickets mm-hmm. so that he could cover his ass? Yeah. Ohio is covering its ass here. They don't want to admit For wrongdoing. a monetary reason. Right. There is no legitimate reason for them to keep... And this continues for like 40 years. Unbelievable. So finally, oh. after battling this over and over and over... In April of 2020, Dale finally received a payout from the state of a whopping $775,000. What is he, like 80 now? And he probably has over that in legal fees. Probably. From fighting the state. And he's probably got health problems now. He's 80 years old. Hey, and he pro- he's had trouble working with this on his record. Everybody thinks he tried to rape and murder his daughter. That's nowhere near enough. No. Not even close. But about this trial, there was actually a book written about the entire case called Guilty by Popular Demand by Bill Osinski. And so if you are interested in this case and want to know a little bit more, he goes very deep into it. He actually... You know the story that I told you McKnight told them had mm-hmm. happened where the couple had come there to buy weed and then he went to go party with them in the corn stalks. And, right. Well, what Todd's older brother Greg later said was that Todd would never touch drugs. He was a firefighter. He was very a by-the-law person. What Greg thinks happened was Annette was actually applying to the Ohio University in Lancaster and would be traveling back and forth Branch campus. The branch campus, yeah. Mm -hmm. So she was going to be traveling soon back and forth, and the couple only had one car between them. So Greg had seen a poster posted by Kenny Linscott selling his vehicle. So it makes sense that the couple had gone there that day to buy a car for Annette to travel back and forth to school. So that, to me, makes a lot more sense. So he thought, I'll I'll just take her money, I'll rape her, and then I'll Mm -hmm. kill them. Exactly. And it makes sense why they would get into the car with them to test drive, of course. Yeah. So, oh my God. I believe his brother more than anybody else, obviously, like not the murderer. That seems like a very legitimate so, rationale for what he thinks happened. Yeah, so it is an all-around bad story. Nobody won in this. No. That was a, a good suggestion by your dad. Yeah, I didn't realize it went so in-depth. I didn't realize they'd ever had any resolution to it. Yeah, well, he told me that somebody got caught and then they later got out of jail, but I didn't realize it was so recently that he finally was exonerated. completely exonerated. Yeah. yeah. As far as I'm concerned, that's a new development because back when I heard the story, I had no idea yeah. those people existed. So, 26 years later. Yeah, that's that, that poor family. Yeah. Is her mother still alive? Well, her stepdad is, so I assume so. I, I th- just wonder if the mother would like to be able to look back now and go, okay, he was always innocent. I couldn't find anything. The only <clears throat> family I could find was obviously Dale. And then Todd's parents are still alive, and they live in Nelsonville. Yeah. That was sad. Very sad. Mm-hmm. And out- outrageous how they treated I can't believe the stepfather. Those laws were still that bad until 2003. That's mind-blowing. <sighs> well, I have some surprising statistics in my story, too. Okay, yeah, what are you doing this week? I am doing sort of a small story based on the big story of human trafficking. Okay. So human trafficking is in the news all the time these days, right? Yeah. I mean, everywhere you look, there's somebody talking about it. People are disappearing all over the world. 
They're just snatched off the street. They're stolen from a mall. They're lured to a first date that's really just a setup. Mm-hmm. They're offered a job that never existed. And, and it's then so they easy just, with the internet now. They just disappear. Human trafficking is not new, but the modern definition of trafficking is relatively new. Only in the year 2000 did the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime even officially define the term. They say that human trafficking is the act of gathering, moving, receiving, or keeping human beings by threat, force, coercion, or deception for exploitative purposes. And this includes sexual exploitation, forced labor or services, slavery or practices similar to slavery, servitude, or the removal of organs. And I had never thought of that, but, yeah, you know, yeah. the people who end up in the bathtub Your full of ice. Your missing. Yeah, that's, that's a form. Oh. She wants to speak. Puss is not happy with this subject matter. <laughs> the U.S. Department of State makes it clear that a victim need not be physically transported from one location to another for the crime to fall within the definition of trafficking. The practice of forced labor was common as far back as history is known and almost certainly before history even began to be recorded. It was a common fact of life for wealthy individuals to indenture or enslave low-wealth people Mm -hmm. from their region. But eventually, once ocean travel became more reliable, Western Europe began globally trading in trafficked humans, as we are all well aware. The kidnapping and transportation of people from Africa to Portugal began around the 1400s. This international flow of kidnapped people continued and spread throughout Europe and into the Caribbean and the Americas, notably the future USA, where it continued until the end of the American Civil War in 1865, Mm -hmm. two years after Abraham Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation in the third year of the war. Legal slave trade in the United States had continued 58 years past the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, which was signed by King George III in 1807. Sorry if you guys hear the cat purring. It was either this or listen to her meow. I'm trying to rock her to sleep, so she'll shut up. Other countries around the world continue to abolish the right to enslave people, with the last country on record, get this, the last country on record to abolish legal slavery was Mauritania in 1981. The same year the Logan Torso murders happened. That's bonkers. Or was that 82? It was 82, but still. But it was about the same time. That's in our lifetime. Yeah, honey, that was not your lifetime. But that was 177 years after. Where is that? Like what continent? That's on the west coast of Africa. Okay. Mauritania in 1981 was 177 years after Haitian rebels' victory in the war for independence from France, after which Haiti immediately became the very first country in the world to permanently ban the practice of human slavery back in 1804. Wow. I mean, 1804 still, in the, in the lexicon of human history, that was still recently. It's uncomfortably recent, but also, I knowing what's going on in the world those times, I'm not shocked about that. Well, the Haitian rebels, I was reading about this yesterday, the enslaved people in Haiti, which was then, I think, French Domingue or something, I don't know how to mm-hmm. pronounce it right, they were really badly mistreated by the French commissioners in that area. And so they had a big uprising, and I think it was like 1798 or 99, when they first overthrew it and got out from under France's thumb. But then Napoleon came along, and he's like, nope. And he came back in, and he squashed them. And then they rose up again, and they were finally free in 1804. Good on Napoleon. Yeah, so that was more than I intended to talk about that, but we can cut it out if you want to. 
So that tiny bit of world history is just background to illustrate why human trafficking is still, even today, such a complicated and mm-hmm. raw subject to try to understand yeah. and to try to address. Humans have just been awful to other humans since time immemorial. But the modern world has the dichotomy of being, one, more educated and supposedly enlightened people, but it also presents more opportunities for evil people to find, deceive, and ensnare their victims, Mm -hmm. which is what you were saying with the internet a few minutes ago. Yeah, unfortunately. We tend to think of human trafficking mostly in terms of abducted persons who are forced to participate in sex work against their will, but there are quite a few types of forced labor and other actions that are also in the sphere of trafficking exploitation. Some of these other ones include domestic servitude, where the victim is forced to perform work in a private residence, which can make the victim especially vulnerable because they have no independent access to food or medical care, and if they're being beaten or abused or sexually abused, they have nowhere to escape to, and they have no one that can help them. And probably no one knows they're there. That's okay. I mean, I kind of understand what you're saying, but are you going to have an example of something like that? Not for each of these, but the example for this one would be, say that there is someone who is here that is an undocumented migrant okay, or an undocumented immigrant. They don't have any papers. They don't have anyone they can go to. And they have to either be paid under the table or with, you can live here type of situation. Well, it might start that way. Uh But then perhaps this really unethical person who has taken them in to say, hey, I will give you a quote-unquote job, but now you're just a prisoner in my home and you're going to do all the work and you're going to be sexually compliant when I want it. And, you know, they have no options. They have no escape and there's no one that even knows they're there. Well, and then if they try to escape and make it out, that person's probably holding, blackmailing them. Well, I'll go to ICE. Exactly. Exactly. So they really are... Okay. They have have no choices there. Okay. The only thing they could do is escape and just run away, but they don't really have anywhere to go. Another example of this type of exploitation is forced child labor. And often people don't know what to look for to find out if someone might be participating in that, like forcing children to labor for them. But it's usually only visible if you're looking at this situation and a child appears to be in the custody of someone who's not a family member. And they're working and there might be some money coming in from what they're doing, but the family's not benefiting from that. The Mm -hmm. benefit goes to someone that's outside the family. And so frequently this child is also being denied rest and food and education. So basically they're enslaving children. Then there are child soldiers, and these are terrible situations where a governmental or even a non-state armed group, ISIS, does this. Some of the groups in different countries in Africa that are really terrorizing the, the citizens of that country, they participate in this kind of stuff where they're using children as expendable soldiers mm-hmm. or even in support roles for these paramilitary groups. But children who are forced into these situations are also very frequently sexually abused as well. Yeah. So those children have almost no hope. I mean, how many stories have you heard from even American troops that come back from fighting in these wars and they're like, oh, yeah, I saw this big bad person with a gun shooting at me, and I realized they couldn't have been older than 13. Yeah. Like, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. They will take them in even younger than that, force them into this I mean, they were trained to do that since they were, like, six or seven. Well, they kidnap them from their families, and they don't have any choice. It's either you're going to do this or I'm going to shoot you right now. Yeah, kill or be killed, and that's just... 
unfortunately what it comes down to. One that is kind of similar to this, but not the same, is forced criminal activity. So they're basically creating a gang of children. children or adults too, but I think it's more often children. They're kidnapped persons who are forced to commit crimes that could get them killed. And if they do get caught, they get abandoned or they'll get killed so that they can't testify against the person who made them do this. And there's even up to the point where there's forced begging. So traffickers have a, a little cadre of children or adults who are panhandling or begging in the well, streets. We saw that a lot in Rome. For children doing it? Yeah, all those kids that come up and hand you the flowers. Oh, those and like... were the Roma. Those are not... Those... But still, like having your kid out there in the heat all day just making money. <laughs> yeah. That's I don't, not good. I don't know what they're relationship with their families are i don't think it's similar to what we're talking about but but yeah that's just a cultural thing that's just part of their lifestyle but to go back to where i started on this list approximately 50 percent of individuals who are stolen for trafficking are forced into sex work in some way Mm -hmm. in 2018 just over 49,000 total victims were known to have been trafficked. That's a small percentage of the total number of trafficked victims. That's how many they know about. Yeah, I mean, trafficking is one of those things where they target the people that people wouldn't know. That's right, exactly. But yeah, it's heartbreaking. Of the 49,000 known victims in 2018, 46% of them were adult women, 19% were girls under the age of 18, Mm -hmm. 20% were adult men, and 15% were boys under the age of 18. And so if you kind of think about the breakdown of the the different types of exploitation that I mentioned, mm-hmm. 50% of these individuals that are stolen for trafficking are in sex work. Okay, well, that just about breaks down, doesn't it, with, with yeah. the percentages that I just gave. But just because they're boys and men doesn't mean they're not being forced into sex work. Of course not. A lot of them still are. According to a Bangladeshi government report, in the last 10 years, they believe over 200,000 women and children were stolen out of Bangladesh alone. Okay. And between 20,000 and 50,000 women, girls, and boys are taken to India, Pakistan, and Middle Eastern countries every single year. India is the most common immediate course because the border between Bangladesh and India is mostly unfenced and it's very porous. Mm -hmm. So they don't have very much trouble getting through the border. And once you cross the border, how do you get them back? You know what I mean? That's a good setup for our story. Oh, gosh. Okay. (laughs) One common way for traffickers to trap many of these, especially the women and girls, is by playing an employment ruse on them. Traffickers will use social media platforms such as Facebook and TikTok to make contact with and trick women and girls into believing that they have received legitimate, well-paying job offers in markets or superstores or beauty salons. In a country where work can be scarce and very low-paying, these offers are pretty tempting and on a site such as Facebook, it's really easy to set up a page that looks legitimate. Yeah. I mean, crap, we did it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, ours is legitimate, guys. We're real. Yeah, but seriously, though, that's that's horrifying that... Well, because they're not sophisticated people a lot of the time. Yeah. These are not people who have been able to obtain high levels of education. They are living in very poor environments. They don't have safe housing. They mm-hmm. don't have an easy supply of food. And a lot of them are so young that, of course, you want to believe it's real. Of course yes. you do. Like, yes. Aside from social media scams, even though, it's common to be betrayed by people that are actually known to the victims Mm -hmm. because it's a job for them. 
So, when 16-year-old Mariam received an offer of a great job with good pay, the clincher was that the job offer came from an acquaintance of the family. The job was supposed to be in a district in Bangladesh near that open border with India. Mm -hmm. She thought this job would be a great opportunity, so she agreed. She packed up her bags, and the man came and picked her up. They took off, headed towards the job. But when they stopped and the family acquaintance transferred her over to two strange men, Mariam figured out what was happening. They reached the border with India, and instead of stopping in that district, they just kept going. Once she realized what was happening, Mariam just wanted to cry. She tried to act normal, tried to act as if she didn't understand what was going on, so they wouldn't be suspicious of her, so they wouldn't clamp down on her. When they pushed her onto a passenger boat, which had other travelers on it, Mariam quietly convinced a strange man on the boat to let her use his cell phone. So she called her 34-year-old mother, Asaya. Mariam told her mother, I'm being taken to India, save me, and told her mother the names of the two men that were forcing her to cross the border and go to who knows where. Mm -hmm. The captors finally realized what she was doing and they snatched the phone away from her and that was the end of that call. So now the mother is sitting there with this information Terrified. Yeah, but at least you made a mark and let somebody know. Yeah. So the two men kept Mariam moving for several more days when they stopped in the eastern Indian state of Bihar. Mariam found herself imprisoned at a brothel there. Meanwhile, Asaya had taken note of everything that Mariam had told her and sprang into action. She first went to Dhaka and filed an Indian missing person report and was assured that the police would investigate. But after 40 days, she had heard nothing and she had heard no more from Mariam. Since the police were not helping, Asaya decided she had to investigate it herself. Mm -hmm. She called one of the men that Mariam had named as her kidnapper and told him that she was looking for a job abroad. He told her he could get her a great job in India, and Asaya said that was exactly what she was hoping for. Mm -hmm. She gathered all of her savings, which amounted to about $703, packed it under a wig and covered her head with a scarf and left for the border. I guess she's taking this money, so if she has to bribe somebody or mm -hmm. whatever, she's got something to do it with. The men then transported her deeper and deeper into the country. The brothel where Asaya ended up was in New Delhi, and not at the one that Mariam had been taken to. Asaya discovered that the traffickers didn't take all of the victims to the same location, and she would have had no way to know that. Mm -hmm. But Asaya stayed there four more months, bearing the awful day-to-day -day of being forced to perform in a brothel because she was determined to find and save her daughter. She continued waiting for updated information because at this point she has no idea where her daughter might be. Ugh. She knows roughly where she is, but she doesn't know how to that find her. That has to be the only thing keeping you going at that point. Cause, oh. It is. She continued waiting for updated information until June when her husband finally called to say that Mariam had managed to call home again. Mariam had contacted him through a cell phone that she had borrowed from a client. And we can talk about that word later. A client, because yeah, he's a rapist. Yeah, yeah. But we'll talk about that later had told her father that her location was about 800 miles away from New Delhi, where Asaya was. That's so, so far. Asaya's husband then relayed the information of Asaya's location to Mariam, and Mariam determined that she had to escape where she was and make her way to where her mother was. Oh, they're both trying to save each other. They are. <laughs> Asaya's like, my little girl is going through this hell, Ugh. and Mariam is like, my mom 
mm-hmm. is going through this hell, and neither one of them could stand You're it. You're going to make me cry. So, in the middle of the night, a few days later, Asaya escaped the brothel to meet up with Mariam. Mm-hmm. With the help of the same client who had lent her his phone and also some locals who wanted to help her, Mariam had made her way the 800 miles to New Delhi where her mother was. On June the 18th, they were reunited. Four days later, the two had traveled back down to the border with Bangladesh, but getting back in wasn't as easy as getting out was. They were stopped at the border and questioned. Authorities listened to their story and quickly arrested the three accused traffickers, who were ringleaders of a larger ring that included 25 additional traffickers, including some women, which is just... That always shocks me. Because, Always. Because they're heartless assholes just like the men are. I know. Just as a woman, how you could... I don't get it. <laughs> how can you send somebody else to that fate? I don't know. But how, how does anybody send anybody to that fate? I know. So anyway, Asaya said she had seen many other young girls from the slum that they live in disappearing. And those girls never came home. Mm-hmm. She and Mariam still live in anxiety because of fear of reprisal. For getting those three men arrested. Of course, it's like getting a gang member put away. Of course you're Basically, scared somebody's yeah. going to come after you. Exactly. They never know when the other shoe might drop. Each victim that this gang sold to a crime operation in India was sold for between $1,200 and $1,800 U.S. But because of Mariam's youth, she had been purchased for about $3,400 U.S. That's so disgusting. It is, because to ruin somebody's life for that amount of money... Just over and over, thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. Mariam and Asaya had experienced five months of absolute hell and daily assaults, but they survived against the odds. Many trafficking victims are never seen or heard from again. Mariam knew her mother would do anything in her power to save her, and Asaya wasn't concerned about herself. When her daughter was kidnapped, she knew no one was going to do what she was willing to do to get Mariam back. I mean, she couldn't even get the police to even do anything at all. So the only person who was going to get Mariam back was Asaya. So this is the story of two determined women whose love for each other is what saved them both. And I want to go back to the double-edged sword who was, for all practical purposes, a rapist who frequented and paid for sex at this crime scene brothel. Mm -hmm. I mean, every time somebody goes to a trafficking brothel like this, they are committing a crime, and I don't mean like some monetary crime, and it's don't mean some moral crime that people think that sex work is illegal. Right. I'm talking about raping people who do not want to be there. I wonder, just a devil's advocate, do you think the clients are all aware that these girls were put here not by choice? Maybe not. They because may not be. I think it's possible that they aren't. Because that a lot of men would probably go there and pay money, but if it's well known, those with a conscience might not well, I, spend their money there if they were to know that these girls were there. So it makes I sense have, to me that he didn't know, and then he goes there, and then she explains her situation. He's like, yeah, you can use my cell phone. Cause yeah. this is, well, I would like to hope that that's the case, I, because I, yeah, just, I have no issues with sex work if it's intended by the person who's participating yeah, in it. Yeah, as long as and, everybody is consenting. That's and as long as they're not being extraordinarily exploited in some way that they don't have any mm-hmm. control over. And I have to believe she's not getting the money that she earns I don't think she's getting any work. money. Exactly. All so she's getting absolutely is... nothing good happening for her why she would want to stay there. Exactly. So so he did. I'm going to kind of go with what you said. He maybe didn't know what the situation was. Mm-hmm. He liked her. He kept coming back to see her. And she finally learned to trust him. And she said, hey, 
I'm not here by choice. Yeah. Please help me get out. And he helped her escape. But like I said before, by putting money into the hands of the criminals, this is the root cause of trafficking. Yeah, if, if there wasn't a need in quotation mark for it, yeah, if then there the wasn't service a... would not be profitable for it. Exactly. Every person who's paying money to have sex with a trafficked person is the problem. Mm-hmm. People, this is what's causing this to exist. Yeah. So maybe some of them don't know, but I have to believe a lot of them do know. I mean, you don't walk into a place with a bunch of 16-year-olds and tell me you didn't know any of them. We're not adults. You didn't yeah. have any of them. I mean, how many 16-year-olds really want to have sex with 50-year-old men, you know? I mean, I had a huge crush on Hugh Laurie at the time. You know? <laughs> Even I though he was mean point. to everybody. That was part of the allure. <laughs> well, when I'm mean, you don't think I'm adorable. Well, you aren't British. Okay, well, he wasn't British in-house either. <laughs> he was just Fair as enough. American as you were mean. <laughs> I'm just going to quickly list things that make a person vulnerable to traffickers Mm -hmm. and then we can get off of this sad sad subject economic need which puts a person in a position of being willing to take risks to make money that things that they wouldn't normally do Mm -hmm. a child who has a dysfunctional family or a lack of parental care so nobody is watching that child nobody's teaching that child how to be safe nobody's showing that child how to recognize danger when it's near them Mm -hmm. An intimate partner who's a trafficker, and this one seems clear-cut, but I think sometimes these people will lure women or partners into a relationship solely for the purpose of dragging them into this lifestyle that they don't want to be part of. I feel like even to be a trafficker, you don't have to be working for some big ring either. No, you can be an individual. Living with your girlfriend and say, "Well, we're kind of tight on cash. You have to have sex with this person for money." I consider you a human trafficker because yeah. And the articles that I read, and there were some really good ones. I didn't. I feel like kind of creepy because I was reading all of these. UN and Department of State articles on human trafficking, but I mean, I learned a lot. Well, we're already on a list. It's fine. Just all in or nothing. (laughs) But they did, they did say that, you know, the different varieties are individuals and then there are cartels of them and then there are just people who get together and just work together sometimes. So what you said is completely valid. Persons with mental, behavioral, or neurological disorders may not always make decisions that are in their own best interest. They may have trusting. They may have issues with attention. They may not recognize that something around them is becoming a danger to them. Mm-hmm. And like you said, they may be more trusting on some levels. And then other people, when you're interacting with someone who has neurological disorders or issues, you may not know by looking at that person if something is wrong. If they are frightened, you may not be able to look at them and see that. So also, the one we went back to earlier with the domestic servitude, immigration status is a big one. People who aren't going to want to go to authorities, Mm -hmm. and there may not be anybody who even knows they're missing, these people are very, very vulnerable. People who don't speak the language, either the local language or that of the traffickers, they are at a real disadvantage, and they have a hard time reaching out for help. And obviously, if a person has physical disabilities, it makes it at least somewhat easier, depending upon the disability, well, to overpower back. the victim. Yeah. 
So, so that's all I have. And I have some really interesting maps and charts that I'm going to probably post on okay, yeah. Instagram that show some surprising data about the flow. When you look at the map of the United States, mm-hmm. all the arrows go inward. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even living in Ohio, my entire high school, we had speakers, multiple speakers come to talk to just the women and be like... Be aware, this happens here. Like, this happened to me here. I disappeared from the age of 14 to 18 because crap. I didn't realize how impactful it was at the time. But looking back, I wish I'd written down their names or something. Yeah, and my friend, I'm not going to mention her name and I'm not going to mention where it was, but she posted something on Facebook two Christmases ago about uh, a little Christmas lights display at a park. And I think it was across the street from a police substation. And there was a little girl there with her mom and they were walking up a a little bridge thing. They were Mm -hmm. stepping up something. And this man came up to the little girl and said, hey, are you here by yourself? Come on with me. And he was trying to get this little girl to go with him. And the mother's like, what are you doing? They booked out of there and they went, I think they went across the street to the police station. But these people are so freaking bold. They will just reach right out and try to grab you. So it is scary. It's yeah. very scary. And it's been going on forever. Mm-hmm. And it will go on forever. And unfortunately, even the signs that we can list today, like that this is happening, I couldn't tell you every single type of plan they have because they're learning what the police are onto and they're getting sneakier and better at it and it's so scary i mean yes people are getting better at recognizing it and Mm -hmm. there are probably more people being rescued out of it now than there were 10 years ago Mm -hmm. but they're just taking more people to make up for that so it's just Mm -hmm. i i don't know how you ever overcome this and make it not exist i don't see how that's possible I think we should kind of start an island with only women, and then if they're really bad women, we just vote them off. All right. Or we put them in the Norse little boat and shoot an arrow into it. Okay. Are you saying a sea burial? Yes. But live? (laughs) A live sea burial. When you put it like that, it sounds cruel. Yeah. Not as cruel as that one you said in that one about that one episode. How they would cover them in honey and then tie them onto a canoe or whatever. No, they crammed them into a dead log and let the bugs eat them. Gross. I know. I wish I'd never looked at that. All right. That's the end of my story. We want to recognize and encourage you to go check out Dying to be Found. Yes. Deb and Beth. You heard them at the beginning of our episode this week and last week. So don't forget to check them out. Yes. We found a new big red dot in Eugene, in Eugene, Oregon. Just appeared overnight, and it, it wasn't there at all yesterday, so somebody sat down and listened to multiple episodes overnight, and we were tickled pink, so thank you for that. Yeah, so you guys went big and hard. That sounded dirty. <laughs> right. Well, that's freaky. Fast. Well, that's just rude. Have you ever wanted a sub so bad that you were willing to punch a man? The fact that you thought this long. (laughs) Well, see, I can't get busy punching people when I'm waiting for a sub because I have to stand there and stare at their hands and make sure they're not putting any kind of meat or onions on my sandwich. Yeah, or like they always end up reaching and grabbing it and then letting it go and then go and grab my vegetables with the same hand they just touched. I'm like, you have salami fingers now. I don't want your salami fingers on Yeah, get that turkey and ham off of my tomatoes. Mm. Yes. 
or a big onion will fall into the green peppers and they'll just grab it with the green peppers. I don't want that onion. Mm-hmm. I don't want it. Especially if it's a surprise onion. I don't mind onions, but if I don't know there's onions in there and I take a big bite of onion. For me, Ugh. it's always a surprise onion and I never want them ever under Agreed. any circumstances. All right, well, that was way too much about it. Yeah, me. so, uh, <laughs> you know, a little more about our sandwich preferences. We're basically Shakespearean now. Much ado about onions. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be our first t-shirt. Much ado about onions. Yeah, I think that's about it, and we can't really talk a whole lot right now because we have another episode that we're recording in two days. Yeah, because somebody is ditching me for a week and going out of town for a wedding. Wedding? Not her own wedding. Somebody else's wedding. Yeah. If it was her wedding, I'd be going too. Yeah. Well, maybe. It depends if I'm mad at you. If you made my sandwich too slow the week before, you might not be there. If you punched me over it. Uh, yeah, so I guess I'll say congratulations to Mary and Matt because this is their wedding weekend that this is coming out. So Awesome. Okay, well, we can now be found on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Mm-hmm. At True Crime B&B. And you can send us an email with any story ideas or if you just want to tell us something that's happened to you in your life that you think that people should know about. Our email address <laughs> is truecrimebndpod at gmail.com. Yes. All right. Any last words till Sunday? Happy early Mother's Day. Oh, thanks. Yeah, my mom got her flowers yesterday. Oh, she did already? She got her flowers, and I sent her some chocolates along with it. Because my mom loves her chocolates. Who doesn't? That's all I'm going to say. I don't know. But she doesn't normally like roses. Mm -hmm. It's not she she doesn't hate them, but she's a wildflower person. Right. But I saw this bouquet, and it was sorbet colors. So it's purple sherbet and green sherbet and orange sherbet and Mm -hmm. pink sherbet. It was just beautiful. And so I sent her that. And she texted me yesterday and says, were all these supposed to be for me? (laughs) (laughs) No, Mom. I wanted you to split them up amongst the family. (laughs) Drive over to my sister's house. Drive to my brother's house. Give them to Uncle John. He'll want them. (laughs) So cute. So that's all I got. That's sweet. So thank you for being here, crime family. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hi, Bailey. I'm Beth. I'm Bailey. (laughs) (laughs) Nice to meet you, mother. Sorry. Where do you I don't know why I felt the need to introduce myself to you. It's like I've only known you for a little bit of 27 years, basically. (laughs) Count the pregnancy. All right, let's start over. Yeah. The Ohio Supreme Court granted Dale the Declaration of Independence. Independence. (laughs) (laughs) You are now your own country. (laughs) Don't like it? Oh, God. Sorry, that was really funny. Okay. All right. Straight face now. Talk in your quiet voice. This is my really sad, I'm trying not to cry, but get the facts out, boys. (laughs) (laughs) They had been high school sweethearts. Blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I'm getting shaky because of the caffeine. (laughs) I thought you got stung by a bee. you jumped you're like oh god well it never rings sorry no. mom's phone rang and scared the cat hell out of both of us okay i couldn't figure out what that was i thought there was an alarm going off somewhere all right sorry about that okay, interruption so. after you stop squeaking uh, yeah that was really weird right. Right. we have a lot of shit to cut out yeah that's, that's enough that's enough all right we have to do a real goodbye though oh yeah all thank right. you for being here again this week you guys we appreciate you and we can't wait to find you again in the week Sounded really creepy.
We can't wait to find you. We've been following you. We'll, we'll see, see you on our map. We'll be there soon. We'll see you right now. Do you see us? 